You're listening to the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey, a leading multi-platform audio content and entertainment company. Listen on the Odyssey app. Hello and welcome to the Marketing Futures Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Berberich. We talk a lot about MarTech on the pod, but it's usually about using it, not building it. Well, today we're coming to you from the other side of the fence, as my guest is Joe Herkin, CEO of Issue, a digital publishing platform that's looking to empower brands of all sizes to get their content to the right people in the right format on the right channel. Joe and I discuss the importance of workflow considerations when crafting MarTech, and why, in Joe's eyes, a lot of providers are falling short. We'll also discuss what the emergence of the metaverse means for creators. Everybody, we are back live in the Marketing Futures Virtual Podcast Studio. My guest today is the CEO of Issue. Please help me welcome Joe Herkin to the podcast. Joe, thank you so much for being here with us today. Michael, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, excited. I'm excited to jump in this. This is a very cool way of looking at content and sort of technology. And there's like a lot of... uh, intertwining things that I think we're going to dive into today. But before we begin, let's set a baseline with my listeners. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how your journey led you to becoming CEO of Issue? I started off uh, my career, I studied Chinese and political science back in the late 80s. I spent my junior year living in Beijing and traveling all around China. It was a, it was a very different world and, and time mm-hmm. back then it was pre-cell phones and emails. And um, right, right. I, I, um, I really kind of explored China by, by rail and, and, um, and by foot in many, many instances. That's really cool. Um, I graduated and then moved to Hong Kong and ended up for, lived in Hong Kong for about four and a half years, and ran the sales and business development side of things for the Economist Group's China business. And in the late 90s, as as many people were doing, I wanted to get into the internet and technology world, and there were opportunities for me to pursue in in Asia, but I ended up wanting to move back to the U.S. and uh, took my first startup tech job with a company called Sina.com, which is now most known for being uh, ho- owning Weibo, which is the Chinese equivalent of Twitter. Right, Back right, then, right. It, was, it was a very small company. It was uh, 35 Taiwanese folks and and me and um, oh, in a little wow. office across the street from, from Apple in Cupertino. The company literally went through three CEOs in six months. And wow. it was sort of like, welcome, welcome to Silicon Valley and welcome to yeah. the startup, the startup ecosystem and the startup world. My goodness. Yeah. Uh, part of those changes suggested that the company would would move its headquarters back to China. And I had just moved from, from China. After my years living in Hong Kong, I, I actually spent 97 and 98 living in Beijing. So I had just moved from China to, to the U.S. and wanted to reestablish a life here. And so I ended up moving to a company called Virage, where we did software for publishing and managing video content. In the early days of video, we provided tools for all the major sports leagues and major content owners and ended up being the, the infrastructure and the technology for many of the early video search and video publishing capabilities on, online. It was a really fascinating, super interesting time to, to be in that world. It was, and, it, and it was also 
the the transition point in the software world from selling packaged software that that had to be installed on on servers right, right. to being SaaS. In fact, at at this company Virage, which we ultimately took public in 2000, we created this group called Virage Interactive. It was before the acronym SaaS even existed, but we were doing SaaS. We we decided our our software is challenging to use. We'll use it for our customers and help them sort of accelerate their ability to distribute video online. And so we created Virage Interactive. And I ended up being in this super interesting role where we were selling this new capability, this new format. And it was this intersection of content, creativity, internet, and and, um, and content consumption, incorporated areas of distribution and new monetization models, et cetera. Again, we took the company public in 2000. Sold it from there. I I ended up going to um, I was at a small little software company, but then went to Yahoo. And oh, cool. uh, when I was at Yahoo, as I joined Yahoo, I was I was brought on to run the business side of things for multimedia search and image search, which was also new back then. This was 2005, and just as I started at Yahoo, Yahoo announced the acquisition of Flickr, and so I mm-hmm. also took on the role of running business development for the Flickr business. And so again, here I was in this role where Flickr was sort of the main event of Web 2.0 at the time, and and mm-hmm. Yahoo's acquisition of Flickr sort of put Yahoo front and center in that in that ecosystem. And again, it was looking at ways to both grow this creativity oriented business that was innovative around technology, but also facilitated creativity. Grow that. Look at ways to monetize and, and build that business. From there, I went to a company called Gaia Online, which was an avatar-based social gaming community. Yeah, yeah I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Again, um, themes of creativity, community, content, innovation. We did a lot of innovation around business models related to virtual goods and um, sponsorships. We did some of the most innovative things at uh, at Gaia with, with major brands. We created movie theaters where you could go see previews of of things like Paramount's The B-Movie, and we created virtual goods that were associated with it that people could have on their avatars, et cetera. And then I I moved into being a CEO. I I have been at Issue now for the last 10 years. And and Issue, again, is is a company that plays at this intersection of content, creativity, technology, and massive scale of people leveraging these tools to be able to make their content available to to their audience. And I I find, you know, one of the the threads and themes throughout my career has been this, again, this intersection of of content and technology, but also providing technology that enable people to really express their passions. And And I think one of the things I've most loved about the experiences I've been fortunate enough to have has been, I've been in a position to help people, companies share those passions and connect with other people who share them as well. That's that's always really rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Man, that is a, one heck of a resume. You had a lot of front row seats to some big moments in the development of what we now enjoy as the internet. And I'm glad that after kind of getting to sample and going around, you found somewhere uh issue that feels like it's at home. 10 years is uh, I'm actually 10 years. Yeah. Long, it's the longest job I've ever had. And, and, um, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of innovation and development in, uh, in our world and our ecosystem. And of course um, it spans 10 years in, in, um, in internet time is a 
Oh my Sometimes God. They're sort of like living in dog ears, you know? Yeah, exactly. Precisely. If you would, because you 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 kind of gave me a, a version of this, and I just think it's fascinating. If you can give us a little behind the scenes peek at how issue works and how your users are are leveraging it nowadays. Yeah. So we're this massive digital publishing platform. We we enable content creators, marketers, businesses to take the content that they're creating that enables them to tell the story of their business. We enable them to take that content transform it into all the different assets they need to reach their audience on whatever channel that audience needs to consume that content on. So we we are very much a, a content velocity engine. We enable you to take the content that you're creating on Canva or take the content you're creating with Adobe tools or new companies like PixArt or um, you know a whole range of creation tools companies. And we enable you to then transform it into all the different assets you need. So we enable you to create that content once and then share it everywhere rather than have to natively create for each of the channels where you want your content to appear, we help you automate that process. So if you're a business that has a catalog or a brochure or you have Mm. sales materials or collateral, you can upload that into issue and we will turn it into a range of derivative assets from a video and link enhanced paginated version that can be embedded on your website or beautifully shared across any social channel to automatically, and we're using machine learning and AI for some of this to automatically turn elements of that content into articles that are mobile for sharing or turn it into a QR code. If you're a, if you're a restaurant, you can upload your menu. We automatically turn it into a QR code for you so that your audience can access the fullness of your menu anywhere that you want. We'll turn it into a social post for you and we're working on automating that process as well. We'll turn it into a GIF and then that GIF with one click of a button can be embedded into your MailChimp repository so that you can now include your brochure in, in your in your MailChimp uh, email. So again, what, what, what we're doing is we sit in the center of a creator's workflow. They create using whatever tools they want and increasingly, the most important aspect of, of the creation set of tools is the ability to be able to use and reuse that content mm-hmm. and then be able to efficiently distribute it. It used to be not that long ago that a digital strategy meant I used Adobe or Microsoft tools. I made some images or content or video. I bought access to the web through Wix or WordPress or Squarespace. And then I paid Google a little bit of money to drive people to those pages where the content I created lives, right? To drive mm-hmm. them to buy, purchase, or, uh, or watch, or, um, or or read my content. And now the web is just one of dozens of different channels. And what we have, we we live in this in this world where there are tens and tens and tens of millions of businesses, all of whom understand the necessity of getting their materials, their brochure, uh, their marketing, their sales collateral, all that content, they're better understanding that they have to distribute that digitally. There's a whole range of channels that also keep growing. So there's this huge proliferation of businesses being created, content that those businesses are creating, the channels where that content needs to go. And so we are the company that helps them address that format fatigue and navigate Mm -hmm how that content 
gets consumed and shared. So we, I think of this world really as the story cloud. So the story cloud are the tools and services that a business needs and uses to tell their story to their audience, wherever that audience is. While MarTech is clearly invaluable to the marketer's toolkit in 2022, we had an earlier talk and you mentioned that you felt that a lot of MarTech companies were falling short in their responsibility to marketers. Could you explain what that means? Because I thought that was, this is a very interesting way of looking at it. I couldn't agree more, but what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think it's even broader than just MarTech. I mean, I I think it's it's SaaS and software companies in general. I think Mm -hmm. um, typically... Software SaaS companies have this sense of like, I'm going to build great software for my customers and I care about my customers, of course, but I'm going to build this great software and then they can use it. And what happens is then we burden our customers with having to figure out one, how to really use our software, but more importantly, we burden them with figuring out how to use our software with other software products in particular. And we don't do enough of the thinking of understanding what is their workflow. So my product at issue is only as good as its ability to interact with the other key tools that that my customer is using. And as an industry, you know, particularly in, in Martech and, and, and software more broadly, we don't think about that enough. We we should be thinking about our product in the hands of the customer mm-hmm. and how they're using it, not just is my product doing what I said it would do? Is my right. product, you know, there's a notion of delighting customers. So I want to delight my customers. That delight happens beyond the confines of my product. And as an industry, we need to give that a lot more fuel and a lot more energy. And we're seeing some of that happen. It's why I talked earlier about the notion of there's going to be this huge emphasis on the workflow. The best way to sell software moving forward is to sit in the customer's chair and look at what are the tools they're using and not be arrogant about the fact that my tool is the best one or that, or, you know, focus on this one first. What's the workflow? How does it, what, what, are, what are they doing in order for me to provide them value? I always want to be in a position where we're providing value. And in order to do that, you know, in the case of issue, we have customers who create their content in Canva, right? So. How do we make sure that they can then easily upload that content into issue from Canva rather than have to go through a process of downloading it and then signing up for issue and all those sorts of things? So we built an integration there that enables them with one click to to use issue. Then from issue, what's happening? So we have customers who who want to create a a GIF that then gets distributed in an email. So we've enabled them, we've automated the process of turning that catalog into a GIF one button, click it, it goes to your MailChimp repository. So it's important, this is just one example, but it's important, I think, increasingly to understand what that workflow is. The second piece that we're seeing just at an industry level is absolutely we're starting to see businesses embrace this. The, the One of the best examples from last year, one of the most interesting acquisitions was into its acquisition of MailChimp. Right. Where on the surface, it is bizarre. It's like two completely different use cases. There's like accounting software and like email communication software. Like how, how, 
how does that come together? But but what Intuit acknowledged is when they're selling to an SMB, the same people who are you who are in an SMB who are buying different tools can also benefit from having ways in which those tools are either linked together or communicating together more effectively. And I think we're going to see more of that. I think we're going to see rollups happening in and around this area where they don't see they're not necessarily obvious fits, but from a customer perspective, they're obvious fits. If I'm buying, I'm an SMB and I'm buying financial software and I have to buy email communication software, why not buy it all together from the same place? Yeah. And it's just a way of like, you have to expand past the product or service you have. And you have to see like, what are you helping people do? What job are you helping to get done? Yeah. Move beyond the arrogance of, you know, we're, we're creating this great technology and software product. Move beyond the arrogance of the product itself and move into how am I creating value with my product, particularly in association with the other the other products used? That value gets defined as the ease with which a company can do their job. Their job isn't to use your software. Mm-hmm. Their job is to communicate their message to a, a wide audience. Their job is to create new products. Their job is to, you know, it, it's for the purpose of, right? Mm-hmm. So my software exists for the purpose of and within the ecosystem of. And if all software companies can use that as a as a priority, we start to serve customers much more effectively and efficiently. I think you had a few years there where there were some brands doing very admirable jobs of trying to provide as much education and training, trying to create the collateral and the support so that you can learn how to use their thing. And I know when you get to a certain level of complexity, there will occasionally have to be things like that. But to bake it into the process, to eliminate those learning curves in the process and product and service itself, I really think that that, that's the end game for tech brands and for brands in in general. I really think that no matter what your product or service is, there's something that you could really take to heart about this conversation we're having today. Yeah, for sure. So you did mention, you touched on a few of the things that issues implemented to make the user journey as seamless and the workflow as seamless as possible. How do you operationalize that? What is the kind of internal thought process or approach that ensures that no part of issue kind of rolls out without all of that already baked in and considered and kind of scenarioed out? When we're rolling out products, we we do a lot of user testing. We talk to our customers. We understand, ask them, try to understand how are they using our product. What are the one of the questions we're constantly asking? What other tools are you using? What are the what's the value that you're getting? Are are you know? And we'll hear things like you're helping us save money. You know, we'll talk specifically about budgets. We're using issue that is enabling us to save X amount of of dollars uh, in in either printing costs or distribution costs or whatever it happens to be. We like to understand what is the impact that we're having on their business. We hear regularly issue helps us punch above our weight, meaning we're making their content look better and, and, and more efficient. In a, in a world right now where there's a challenging economy, we're asking them about not only cost savings, but how are we helping people execute more efficiently because smaller groups of smaller teams are being asked to do more and and how do we facilitate mm-hmm. that so it all starts with our interaction and communication with the customers and we'll show them you know what does this look like and we'll ask them how are you what, you know show us how you use 
issue with the other tools that you're you're working with. So it just ends up being baked into the mentality of what we're delivering. The second piece is we're also being very specific around different kinds of integrations that we're building out. So we have an integration with Canva. We have an integration with Adobe InDesign. We have an integration with, uh, with Hootsuite. We have a range of these integrations because these are the tools that our customers are using as well. And then again, it's not just about stopping at the integration. It's like, how do, are they easy to use? You know, and, mm-hmm. and, and it's an ongoing refinement process. Of course, every time we roll out products, there are trade-offs and there are prioritization and we don't get everything right by, by any means. But we always try to, as we're building, keep that voice of the customer in mind around how they want to use it. Because at the end, that's what matters. How do they want to use it? The Beyond Profit Podcast is part of ANA's Center for Brand Purpose. Host Ken Bo Yu serves up inspirational and insightful interviews with today's foremost leaders in the purpose movement. This podcast will help you learn about the power of purposeful marketing and why being a force for good can be a game changer in a competitive marketplace. Absolutely. I love that. And that first part, that vigorous user testing and really trying to get into the mind of your user, it reminds me of 3M when they create the first prototype of whatever tool or thing they're using. Before they do any bit of refinement, they put it in the hands of the end user and that you get you know feedback that you're never going to get sitting in your office looking at this thing or running the numbers. So that's a really uh, cool way. And it did, when you said it kind of just has become baked into the process, it really does feel like this is a very big cultural pillar within issues. So that makes a lot of sense that there's not, people don't need to really think about it because it's like breathing. Uh, they, we have both. I mean, they absolutely, we, we want to always make sure people are thinking about it, right? You know, we're, we're making choices all the time, right? We're making choices about what goes in the product. We're making choices about how we show up. And one of the things I, I like to talk to share, you know, talk to people about is like, choose greatness in how we're approaching our interactions with customers and how we're approaching the product. Choose greatness because our, our customers are expecting us to, right? Mm-hmm. There isn't an option. You know, our customers aren't saying, eh, make it mediocre, right? Um, so so choose the choose greatness because our customers are expecting it and they're paying for it. And we have three core values at issue, care, grit, and learning. And mm. at a care level, it's caring, obviously, for the people around us and our colleagues. It's also caring for our customers and their interaction with their customers. How do we demonstrate our care for the way in which they're able to efficiently run their business. You know, the grit grit is like roll up our sleeves and you know it's not just about breathing because breathing happens, it's about looking at the challenges and how do we how do we go solve them? How do we acknowledge that they exist and do something about them? You know, and learning isn't just about learning something, it's about how do we apply what we've learned to what we're doing next. So make plenty of mistakes but and it's not just saying oh I learned this or a retrospective of learning something. It's about how do I then apply those learnings into our next rev of the product, into our next planning cycle, into who we're hiring in in that way. 
So as this is the Marketing Futures podcast, uh, we've been talking a lot in the last year about the metaverse, and I have a sneaking suspicion we're going to continue keep talking about it, no matter what iteration it takes or kind of how long it takes to get to that Valhalla of interoperable networks of endless space and, and options. But this is going to be a radically new dimension for content creators. So in your mind, because, you know, issues at the heart of taking a piece of content or an idea or a story and making it fit into these worlds in ways that are just far beyond dimensions and and, and that, what are the initial steps of content creation going to look like in a fully virtualized metaverse world? I get that this is the Futures podcast, but I think once we start talking about the metaverse subject, I think we could call it back to the future as well. We could also talk about it as the Mm. historical uh, uh, podcast, Um, (laughs) because I don't think you can do anything in the metaverse world today without learning from acknowledging and looking at what happened in the first rev of this in the mid 2000s. And Mm. Second Life, companies like Gaia, where I was, avatar-based gaming, uh, Roblox, you know, one of the, one of the most successful companies, Roblox, Unity, Roblox and Unity are companies that have been around for a very long time. Roblox started in the first wave of this metaverse. These are not these are not new ideas. Right. Um, and if you look at many of the demos that have come out of Meta and others, they're very similar to what Second Life was showing in 2007. Right. So I, I'm not you know I'm not minimizing the impact or the effects of the of the metaverse right now, but I do think it's really important to look at what we learned from back then. There's too many people operating and talking about the metaverse as if it's this brand new development and ignoring or don't even realize that 15 years ago, there was a whole wave of companies that were exploring these very same ideas. So there's certainly a whole aspect to metaverse now that's very different. Back then, there wasn't really a universal currency or set of currencies. We have that now with crypto for good or for bad. There's actually a financial system that can cross over into different experiences, different worlds, different uh, elements. That's that's very new. Computing power, obviously, much greater now. The notion that we're going to have a whole bunch of people walking around with headsets across their face, I don't think that's going to happen generally f- for a very long time, if ever. I think the best thing for anyone to be doing in this metaverse world is to, first thing you should be doing is taking a step back. Just like understand that there are some spectacular applications within the metaverse and within virtual reality, for sure. Looking at what those applications are, it's important to understand how does your business, how does your content fit into that? Mm. Because if you And have a sustainable long-term plan. Because one of the biggest challenges that happens right now is people get excited about the opportunity. They dive in and start to create content for a metaverse experience. And One, it's very expensive to keep going. So you need to have a clear business model around how am I going to be able to sustain this at a a revenue and business level. More importantly, it's important to understand that your content can sustain beyond the initial community that's interested or not. If it's a small community, and this is one of the great lessons, if we look back in the mid-2000s, it ended up being... You know, Second Life is a is a relatively small community, obviously compared to Facebook, but really robust and and, and tremendously active. So understand what the what the business is. 
Mm-hmm. If you're creating a metaverse, that's one thing. If you're creating content within a metaverse, there's a lot to learn. Look at how Zynga operated within Facebook. Look at the lessons we learned from there. You can leverage someone else's platform with your content. What's the long-term business play going to be? Is it going to be, or is that platform going to start to gobble up your users and your revenue? So start to have a really clear plan around it. And then I think there are very specific applications that will make a lot of sense. Training is going to be hugely valuable. Gaming, obviously hugely valuable. There will be sales opportunities. There'll be opportunities to, rather than have to hop on a plane, you'll be able to walk people through an experience that you're trying to sell them on, those sorts of things. So understand the application. Entertainment becomes extremely challenging because it's expensive to create on an ongoing basis. There will be plenty of successes. But understand what it costs. Do you have a runway? Do you have a monetization model? And can you scale beyond the initial up into the right movement? You may be able to get your first 100,000 or a million customers, and that looks amazing because you started from such a low amount. But is can you get beyond sort of that first level? And you won't have all the answers to that, but if you start to incorporate those elements into your planning, you'll start to have a a much clearer outlook around what we're doing as opposed to getting caught up in the enthusiasm and excitement for it. When Facebook opened up in 2008, they were still pretty small at that point. I mean, Facebook was in the teens or 20 million uniques, and they started to realize that that Facebook could expand through partnerships, through others using those tools. So it's important to see now, like, who are the platforms that are facilitating that kind of growth. And and just because the platform is big or has access to a lot of partners, it doesn't mean that each partner is going to be successful. So there were huge successes on Facebook and there were real failures. And I think we're going to see the same thing here. Again, it's about those who have a clear depth of content capability and the ability to either really operationalize within your niche market or create multiple niche markets or expand into content that's going to be broadly appealing. I think, honestly, that is advice that a lot of my listeners need to hear at this space in the metaverse, because I think there's this feeling of like, if I'm not Nike, I might as well not be doing anything. And that's really like, or if you're Nike, get in there and just start building and 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 putting things up. That's important. It's like, you know, the Nikes of the world are the ones who often jump in and, and build huge budgets, but not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Uh, If you're a smaller company, you actually may have the ability to be more successful because you're going to manage your long-term plays around it. You're not just going for for quick brand hits. I think that's one of the key things. Move beyond the quick brand hit if you're going into the metaverse. Here, here. Before we kind of pivot this podcast to a few questions we ask all of our guests, uh, if people are interested in learning more about Issue and hearing more from you, where can they check that out? Go to Issue.com, I-S-S-U-U.com. It's the best way to best way to find us and use us, and lots of information on issue uh, resources about what we're doing. You can also go to YouTube and watch videos about us uh, for sure. We have an issue channel there. Very very cool. All right. Uh, so as I said, Joe, we ask these questions of all of our guests. This first one is open, kind of by design. What are your thoughts on diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yes. <laughs> I mean, care to elaborate? 
I think it's one of those things where it's much better shown than talked about. Mm. And I think it's important at a company level, at a culture level, at a business level to have values that focus on DEI for sure. It's much more important to do things about it, right? So if you come back again to one of our core values is care, it's caring about people, it's caring about humans. We're a company that is very global in nature. We have operations around the US and all over Europe. Our customers exist in every corner of the world. And so on one hand, I think obviously culturally, it's it's very important to have real awareness and to do things about it. I have programs actively look at expanding diversity in, in the workforce. At a very practical level, we cater to people all over the place of all kinds of interests, all kinds of passions. And so as a business, if we really want to connect with our customers, then of course, diversity matters. Of course, inclusion matters. Of course, equity matters. So, but, I, but I think it's one of those things that manifests in how you operate. I think it's useful to have goals and public leaning statements, but it's also about, it's not just about the, the people, it's about how are people being treated? Um, mm-hmm. How are we talking or not talking about uh, people, how are we incorporating these elements into into our product? It's it's obviously about the company, but in the same way that we talked earlier about, it's important to care about how our our customers are using our products with other customers. It's the same principle. It's who are the human beings that are working with us and that are that we're serving. At the end of the day, in the technology world, we talk a lot about AI and machine learning and. Web3 and metaverse and all these terms, at the end of the day, it's human beings making this stuff, it's human beings buying the stuff, and it's human beings using the stuff. And Mm -hmm. we forget and don't talk enough about the fact that we are a very human business. It's all we are. We're humans making stuff and selling stuff and communicating and being with each other. And and that to me is, that's the engine of the technology ecosystem. It's the engine of our world, right? It's it's human beings. Very well said. Very well said. All right, Joe, we've been civil so far, but now the questions start getting tough. (laughs) Joe Herkin, CEO of Issue. What is your favorite album of all time and why? Joshua Tree, of course, by you too. <laughs> There's always one or two, one of two ways of of uh, how this goes. It's either somebody rips half of their hair out and then finally comes to a decision among five, or they're just like boom. And you know what? This is the second time you t- a U two album was a boom. Don't need to think about it. So please, what is so special? I mean, to- you're, you're you're talking to old people now, is what what that means. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know if Bono and, and team would would appreciate that, but but um. U2 was the band that my my group of friends in high school uh listened to and revolved around and always played at our uh at our parties and and um it 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 what it just evokes really wonderful memories but I I love the music I love mm-hmm. what um you know we talk about DEI and and, and humanness I, my it's one of the things that resonates in in those songs is a call out and a connection to humanity and and has always been meaningful to me I also actually had the opportunity, Bono was an investor in one of my previous companies, and um, I had a really, it's probably for a different podcast, a different story, but I uh, had an afternoon where um, me and the, and the team got to have lunch with Bono in the Edge, which was which was uh, a lot of fun. So that is pretty cool. If I had a Patreon, I'd have to get you back on here for a side <laughs> story exclusive on that. 
uh, I might just be hitting you up sometime next week to hear the, to the yeah. whole story because that's pretty awesome. That is pretty yeah. awesome. It was pretty awesome. So let's bring it up to the present. Is there anything you're listening to now, be it an artist, a song, a podcast, maybe a book? What's exciting you nowadays? Anything Kara Swisher's involved in. So I, I listen to her mm. podcast. Yeah. And, and again, yeah, I yeah. like Kara for all the obvious reasons, but I kind of grew up in technology with Kara as one of the, the leading tech journalists. And I, I always appreciate her perspective. I like her take on things. I also like how Kara has branched out a lot beyond just technology and started to incorporate the humanness into much of her more recent work. Phenomenal. I love it. I love it. Joe, thank you so, so much. This was a fantastic conversation. You know, I know it was about content and technology and experiences, but I really, at the end of the day, is about the humans that are using all of this and not losing them in the plot. So I really hope everybody took your words to heart and thank you so much for being a guest on the Marketing Futures Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Marketing Futures Podcast. Have an idea for a topic or guest for a future episode? Shoot us a note at marketingfutures at ana.net. Be sure to subscribe to the Futures Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, if you're looking to get smart on the future, point your browsers to ana.net slash futures. This has been a presentation of the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey.